ladies and gentlemen, our next event of the evening is a one-fall match with a 60-minute time limit. What I'd like to have right now... With a big boys play. This is where the big boys play, huh? This is where the big boys play. Hey, folks, this is Justin Rosero of the Place to Be Podcast. You are listening to, I'd say, number uh, co-number one best podcast in the world, and that is, of course, Where the Big Boys Play. Parv, Chad, take it away, boys. Hello, everyone. You're listening to Where the Big Boys Play. I'm here with Chad. How are you, Chad? Doing great. How are you, Parv? I'm very good. Uh, what sort of uh, wrestling-related stuff have you been up to in the past week or so, then? I uh, haven't been doing a lot. I've uh, been studying a lot, but I uh, haven't been able to watch too much in the past week or so. Kind of, uh, I did like the old school Raw uh, last week. That was actually probably one of the first uh, full Raws I've watched in a while. How about yourself? Uh, well, I've been watching a lot of AWA. Um, I've I actually been watching a lot of shoot interviews, weirdly, in the past week. Um, I had a... Um, my uh, my wife has got had to go back uh, to Wales to see her mum who was coming back from India. So um, like past couple of days, I've watched tons of like guest bookers and uh, t- those timeline series with Sean Oliver. Have you seen any of those? Yeah, uh, I've watched uh, I think one of those. I can't remember who it was though. I'm usually not a really a huge uh, shoot guy. Most of the time, but uh, yeah. they can be—they're pretty easy watching usually. I, I watched the 1985 one with Greg Valentine, um, okay. who was uh, yeah, he's moderately amusing, I guess. And uh, I watched the guest booker with Terry Taylor, um, which uh, has raised all sorts of questions about the decline of uh, Mid South. So, what was on the uh, old school Raw? Anyone I would know? I know Sean Mooney was on it last time. <laughs> And yeah, he wasn't on it this time. It was uh, Ric Flair, uh, Sergeant Slaughter, Hacksaw Jim Duggan, uh, mostly the same people, May Young, that they kind of roll out usually once a year or so as kind of a nostalgia act, Mean Gene. Yeah, they're, they're, they're all kind of easy guys for them to book, to be honest. I mean, Slaughter's yeah. been on the books for since 1990, basically, hasn't he? Yeah, yeah. The, I mean, the main thing that I like about the old school Raws is uh, they change the ring apron and they have the old school guardrails and they uh, also have like the old school pyro. So there's a couple of like little touches they do that distinguish it, which I enjoy more than actually uh, seeing the legends. Yeah. Okay, well, the, the other thing I was going to ask you about was uh, the 1990 yearbook. You're all done with that now. Yeah, I am all done with that, and uh, I'm starting on the 1991 yearbook. So, d- d- listeners, when Chad says he hasn't been watching a lot of wrestling, I mean, d- d- you're a machine, right? You do like you can watch more wrestling in a week than I can probably watch in three months. <laughs> um, I mean, I would say I usually average uh, before I started my CPA test, I could average about an hour and a half uh, of wrestling a day. Um, which I think, I mean, that's pretty good, but yeah. I mean, it's mostly like my wife's watching something on her TV. I'm watching something on my laptop. That doesn't really bother me. Uh, so that's where I get a lot in. Right. Well, I guess an hour or half a day does add up. Um, 
uh, my problem is is that like it, it takes a lot of gearing up for me to even start watching something, which is I think a yeah. lot of times when I fall down, you know. Um, so th- let's uh, let's get on to I got some wrestling observers here um, uh, before we go into Clash Eight, um, and uh, well, this is quite one of the largest gaps we've had uh, between two shows in terms of dates here for for some time. So. Um, the uh, bash of the uh, Great American Bash happened in July, and uh, Clash Eight happened in uh, start of September. So we've got a couple of months here between shows. Um, biggest news from August the eighth is that Ricky De- Ricky Steamboat's days with the MWA are over. Uh, his contract expired at the end of July. Um, they couldn't reach an agreement basically over over money, and um, Tommy Rich has basically been brought in to fill in for his uh, book date with Lex Luger. And then obviously Meltzer tries to talk about the impact of this. Do you think this had any impact, uh, really? I mean, obviously they had the, the trilogy earlier in the year, but... Yeah, I mean, I think I think Steamboat's a good, um, like, supplementary piece, certainly, to have in your promotion. Uh, but, you know, based on what we've seen from... <laughs> The box office wise with him versus Flair, it's not like he was really an essential piece or that the NWA was now in deep financial trouble because he left. No, I mean, he wasn't really a draw at this point, I think, if the, if that run proved anything. Although, I do think that if they had booked it, if they had done the marketing differently, it could have been a draw, I guess. Uh, maybe more on that in a second. I, I, have, a, I have a little talking point coming up. Um, it, it, Meltzer liked uh, Bob Coddle and Jim Ross on commentary for for the Bash, especially on the Luger versus Steamboat match. Um, but he wasn't happy about the effeminate quips during the Paulie versus Cornette uh, match. He he said that basically that they went into that match with a comedy mindset, but when they actually saw the match itself, they should have switched to a different mode. Do you agree with that? Um. I mean, I, I mean, the the match was kind of vicious, but I still think at its root, it was more lighthearted than you know what we saw on that card, like uh, like Flair versus Font. So I, I didn't have a big problem with their commentary on that match. He he also praises Gordon Soley in the interview role, and I I actually agree with him there. I think he's been pretty good. Yeah, yep, I agree too. Um, he says that the. Uh, NWA can always count on the support of the hardcores, but have real problems attracting more casual fans. Now, this was the little talking point that I wanted to go over with you, Chad. My view really is that they had a decent audience there. I mean, the hardcore audience was, let's face it, 10,000 people at the Omni, maybe 5,000 people for your bigger house shows, maybe two to 3,000 around the horn. And, like... Uh, to an extent, I think that wrestling is only so big, um, and like the the wrestling in the south, there, the audience is only ever going to be so uh, so big. You know, there's only so many wrestling fans, and that to to an extent, they might want to just concentrate on you know catering to those guys rather than trying to expand into the mega mainstream audience that the WF had. Uh, d- d- any views on that? Um. I mean, I think in certain eras, you've seen 
a significant spike uh, in people that watch wrestling. I mean, for instance, like during the Attitude Era, my uncle and cousins would watch, uh, you know, Raw and mm -hmm. Nitro, uh, you know, every week. And now, you know, it's been 10 years since they probably watched a wrestling show. Uh, I mean, I do think it's important to kind of, it's, it's kind of tough, though. I mean, I do think it's important to sort of keep pleasing your hardcore audience. Mm -hmm. But but even on a smaller scale with somebody like Ring of Honor, uh, you're kind of starting to see that that may not be the best uh, business practice because they've retained, you know, they're pretty kind of hardcore audience yeah. for most of their shows. But right now their product uh, in current day is so cold uh, they're just not attracting any new viewers, even with their TV and everything they're doing. So that's that is a significant problem. I think you do still have to keep building towards new viewers because one thing I know that we've learned from talking to people uh, about wrestling, Parv, everybody on this show, and most people on the message board is there has been you know a pretty long extended period of time where all of us even as the most hardcore wrestling fans have taken a sabbatical yeah and kind mm. of just you know done away with it for i mean sometimes years usually at least about a year or so at the minimum and so uh for some of these companies i mean it, it just seems like wrestling is for some reason an entertainment endeavor that'll lead to that for most right. people. Yeah. Uh, so I do think you do need to keep building towards uh, at least trying to attract some new audience with your promotion. Uh, while not, you know, not completely disowning the loyal customers you have, but uh, I think you can find a happy medium. Yeah, I, one of the uh, shoots I actually watched uh, in the past week was the one with uh, Kevin Sullivan and um, Gabe... Uh, Sapolsky, yeah. Um, who they were doing the guest booker thing, um, but one of the things that Gabe was saying there is that his philosophy for ROH was always that he was going to book for the ten percent. So he's pretty much writing off the ninety percent that he'd never, you know, ROH is never going to get that more casual fan. Um, and I guess what I was saying, I guess what I was saying with this uh, particular talking point was that it, it, it seemed to me that the hardcore audience for um, for Crockett, for not just Crockett but all of those kind of wrestling areas, you know, um, was kind of big enough to carry a certain size of company. Do, 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 do you not think that you know? Do, Ten thousand people at the Omni, five thousand people on your on your kind of regular loop there. I mean, that's that's a lot bigger than ROH, right? I mean, that's kind of big enough to sustain a reasonable size of company and a reasonable roster, no? Um, I mean, maybe I'd have to look at their actual uh, gates. Do some hardcore. I mean, I would say definitely on average they're drawing more than like ROH is now, but. Uh, but I don't think they were, I mean, the, the Omni audience, that's something I do have a good familiarity with. Mm -hmm. And I know the Omni audience really fluctuated. I right. mean, you could have, uh, you know, 12,000 one 
month, come back the same uh, same venue the next month and have 3,000. I, I mean, I don't know where all the 9,000 people went, uh, but it does seem like there was a big variance there. Right, so, so what you're saying is that not all of those people were hardcores anyway? I mean, I think you may have had, like, your true hardcores, but I don't necessarily know if that's as big as a percentage as you're uh, kind of wanting to give credit for. You know what I mean? Like, I think sure. you may have, like, a core audience of a couple thousand, like, in Atlanta yeah. that'll come every week. Uh, but then the rest kind of depends on who's on the card, what's capturing their imagination, uh, sort of a lot of other factors. But, I mean, the thing with Gabe, too, is it's it's been proven time and time again with his endeavors, uh, both with Dragon Gate USA and Evolve, that his philosophy on what it takes to draw in the wrestling business is not the most soundly. Uh, because, I mean, like, in the Vol show in North Carolina, it drew, like, 150 people. Right. Uh, so, which is, you know, really bad. Like, my local indie draws that many, and yeah. these are no-name people. And, I, I mean, that show had, like, Loki on it, who at least was on WWE a year before. And you're in the Carolinas there, right? So, I mean, uh, yeah. hotbed. Okay. I, oh, I, I forgot to mention, I am going to a show soon. Did you see that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, they haven't really posted like an actual card the, for that show, have they? Well, no, I've, I've had the ticket through. Uh, this is a show in Stevenage in uh, in the UK here, uh, a place uh, just in the southeast, um, which uh, John Lister tells me is actually reasonably big wrestling town, which I, I never knew before, I'll be honest. Uh, and, uh, well, my hero... Million Dollar Man Ted DiBiase is coming to Stevenage, but I've um I've had the ticket through, and uh, literally it's just got like it's hundred percent Million Dollar Man, like he's going to be there, and there's no other card details. I don't have a match listing, and I've I've tried to look for it, and I I don't know who's going to be there. The, the only other person I know who's going to be there for sure is Tommy Dreamer. So there we are. Um. Any uh, fond memories of Tommy Dreamer? I, I was never an ECW guy, as I, as I mentioned before. Yeah, I, not much, because uh, by the time I did start watching ECW in 1999, uh, he was kind of phased a little bit. I would say, like, Rob Van Dam, Shane Douglas, uh, even Sabu, to an extent, were still uh, more thrusted into the forefront. Uh, so I don't have any nostalgia uh, for Tommy Dreamer, and the stuff I've watched back has not been uh, too great either. So <laughs> the worst thing that could happen for me is if um, DBRC for some reason cancels that, <laughs> then I'll just be li- literally going to this. Uh, and I saw on my ticket that I'm the 42nd person to buy a ticket there. So I mean, I I, I don't know. We're a few months out uh, still. I mean, it's the, at the end of April, but I can't imagine there's going to be a huge amount of people there. It'd be interesting to see how much of a draw. Uh, I guess DBRC's always been um, kind of hyped on TV, hasn't he? Because of the uh, his son being there, and he he's kind of a constant guy they feature as a legend, right? Yeah, he was there Monday. I mean, Ted DBRC Jr. has not been on the, on the show in quite a while, right? But uh, but DBRC was uh, there at the old school raw too. He was. 
out there managing. It was kind of weird. I, I, I find it really weird that he's coming to this tiny show in Stevenage. Like, if he's, I mean, he's on Raw this past week, so, I mean, what's he, uh, what's he thinking oh, I'm of? Sure they, oh, I'm sure they threw him uh, enough money to make it worth his while. He's the million dollar man. He doesn't, uh, doesn't matter. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, um, August the, uh, 14th, uh, back to 1989 here. Um, and get this, Gordon Soley acknowledged the NWA's passing ways with Ricky Steamboat on his network news. Now, I, I have to say, I at this point, I want to get a comp of that uh, Gordon Soley news segment. Like, if if, if anybody, if any uh, of the kind of dollar shillers out there wants to <laughs> wants to put together a, a compilation of uh, Gordon Soley news segments, I would buy that. Because um, it just sounds fascinating, but apparently they explained it by putting it down to a foot injury. Um, and uh, weirdly, Meltzer puts all this down to uh, Jim Hurd's involvement, saying that uh, he probably picked this up in his uh, days working uh, in the front office of um, of uh, like this baseball team ah. he used to work for. Um, and yeah, I mean, he, he's saying that this is uh, kind of Jim Hurd not quite getting like you don't do this in wrestling. Um, yeah, there's never been a contract. <laughs> Sometimes Meltzer with these. Yeah, I mean, like, there's never been a contract dispute before this time, or nobody's <laughs> walked out on a promotion. I mean, yeah, right. um, so, uh, uh, Flair now has become the chairman of the booking committee, uh, which means that he's getting final say on things. And uh, given that, <laughs> given that in this clash of the champions, uh, the governor of bloody uh, South Carolina declares it Ric Flair Day. I wonder yeah. if this is, <laughs> I wonder if this is Flair's ego coming in, into play there uh, immediately as soon as he's got the book. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Now, um, I, I don't actually understand how Flair could book and wrestle the schedule that he did. As the champ, I it, I find that mind-boggling that he had the time or the energy to to do that without getting completely burnt out. Yeah, he uh, yeah, I mean, he definitely at this time was stretched pretty thin with all the stuff he was doing. Yeah, and for some reason I don't think the same with Dusty. But then, did Dusty ever work a full schedule really while he was booking, or was he? Uh, yeah, I mean, Dusty was still. Well, definitely working a good many dates, so yeah. I, I did, it does seem pretty rigorous for both of them, but I guess, it, I mean, I guess it's just a different time, yeah. because, I mean, I, I mean, like when Lawler, uh, Lawler had the book in Memphis, he was obviously still active, uh, Bill Dundee in Memphis, when he had the book, he was still active, so. Right. Um. So August the twenty first, and uh, rumor rumors are that Nikita Koloff might be coming back. God, I don't think he actually does show up though until nineteen ninety two, does he? Uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, I know he's in UWF uh, in nineteen ninety, but I don't, I don't think he's it, in. Uh, comes back till uh, like ninety one, ninety two in WCW. Is that the Herb a- uh, Abrams uh, UWF? Yeah. <laughs> um, and then we get the. Uh, the di- di- the dynamic dudes are off to Japan for a while, um, so they they've been on TV and uh, at house shows and things. They've been dropped out pretty much to everybody, and uh, good. I hope they I hope they stay there in Japan. 
Um, August 28th, and um, we get a major blunder by TBS on August the 19th, as they played a three-week-old show that had already been aired, instead of a taping that uh, set up some major angles. So this is a pretty major boo-boo here. Um, and this show that didn't air apparently uh, told some vital things, like how Dick Slater broke his arm, uh, among other things. Um, so, I mean, imagine being the guy who pressed the wrong button there. That's pretty ridiculous, but <laughs> not surprising. And then around <laughs> around the same time, at another taping, somebody forgot to press the on button for the uh, recording of the last 20 minutes of a show. That was Dick Slater versus Sting. So they missed the main event. Oh my gosh. Um, but apparently, a couple of weeks later, Mouser says they were able to use footage from different kangaroo angles to, uh, to make up for it. But still, I mean, it's shocking that this sort of stuff is happening in 1989. Right. And uh, this is the promotion we've chosen to <laughs> focus all our time on, Chad. Makes you uh, makes you proud, right? <laughs> um, I mean, I guess it, I guess at this at the same point in time, uh, it looks like WWF was having the SummerSlam sign drop for their interviews. <laughs> uh, so they're having a few mishaps as well. That's a classic moment. I love that. Um, yeah. The uh, the Bash at the Beach. Uh, I keep on saying Bash at the Beach. Great American Bash '89. Pay per view was the biggest uh, was the biggest ever for Turner. It drew uh, 1.5 rating, which is 2.3 million dollars. Not bad. Um, and then in other news, uh, I, this just it made me uh, wonder a little bit because uh, I'd never heard of this before. That Jesse Ventura became the color commentator for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Did you, did you know about this? No, I didn't. Uh, <laughs> So he and I, I follow this up. I actually had a good while. I got sidetracked and read about Jesse Ventura for like an hour because uh, he's a guy with a finger in many pies. Um, and uh, yeah, he had that gig for a year, from like '89 until late in 1990. Uh, Jesse Ventura was the color commentator for them. Um, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, Chad, are they any good? I mean, they're they're pretty good now. They're they're decent now. They are. Uh, they won a Super Bowl. It's, it's been, I guess, about ten years now. Uh, but at this time, they were uh, probably uh, pretty putrid. Well, the only other thing I noted about them is that Malcolm Glazer, uh, the owner of Manchester United, I know him from, uh, is the owner of that of, of that franchise too. Okay, in 1989, they went five and eleven, which is. Uh, Bad. That's bad. Nin- right. 1990, they went six and ten, which is you know that means they were probably pretty competitive. But um, I mean, the, the the Tampa Bay Bucks are one of the most like infamous teams that when they started, they were just like pretty much awful for a couple a couple years. They didn't win, but like one or two games. Well, uh, so. One of the things that fascinates me about American football, and this is a back and forth I've had with one of my friends. Like, do you remember I told you about this friend who's um, basically flipped from soccer, like being a massive soccer fan, to being an American football fan, basically, which is uh, pretty rare. Um, and one of his major reasons for for flipping is uh, because of the of the draft system that you have in American football, where 
basically it means like a, a team like the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, who, like you said, were putrid for many years, suddenly can win a Super Bowl one year. You know, it's like um, that just doesn't happen in football. So if you look at the history books, Manchester United, Liverpool, it's always the same teams, like back for a hundred years, who always do well. Um, you don't get this mechanism where it's possible for someone who comes bottom of the league to, you know, win in the next two decades or something. It just doesn't happen. Yeah, uh, yeah. NFL is uh, the the term that they use is called parity. Yeah. And uh, and the NFL, the NFL is of all the sports the uh, the most prevalent in using that because it's not uncommon for a team that win a. I mean, I mean, just last year, the uh, the New York Giants they finished, I think, ten and six in the regular season, which is, you know, that's good, but not extraordinary. But then they got really hot in the playoffs, and they ended up winning the Super Bowl. Uh, so, so you know, this was a team going into the playoffs that none of the, you know, none of the experts or TV personalities or anybody were uh, were predicting to win the Super Bowl. And just a month later, you know, they did. So it, it can be a pretty quick uh, turnaround. I, I just find it fascinating that one of the most, that basically the most capitalist country in the world has essentially a communist sports system. It's just in, incredible to me. Uh, you know, you, you, I mean, if you, th- if you think about uh, soccer, especially the, the rich get richer, the, the mighty trample the, the, the poorer teams. I mean, that's just what happens. But, uh, <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, a lot of that's based on the structure of the salary cap uh, that's in place in the NFL. Uh, that results, and I mean, like for it in, in Major League Baseball with the Yankees, uh, while they, I mean, they're they're pretty much established as kind of a dynasty, and they go to the playoffs almost every year and at least contend for the championship. Right, uh, and they they've won, I guess, five in the past fifteen years. Um, so they have a pretty good run going. <clears throat> right. Well. Uh, anyway, Jesse Ventura. Was, uh, did, did he have any real connection with Florida, uh, Tampa? I, I mean, I, I thought. No, that seems kind of surprising. Um, I don't know. Yeah. Well, it, he is, he is a guy who's done everything, right? I mean, movies, <laughs> TV shows, governor of Minnesota, incredible. Chap, I can't wait till he turns up. By the way, it's going to be still a couple of years. Um, and then uh, in the newsletters here, um, not a lot happens. Uh, nothing of note in September third or September eleventh uh, for nineteen eighty nine. It's mostly dominated by SummerSlam eighty nine uh, coverage. Um, other than that, sign falling down. Good show, SummerSlam eighty nine. It is a pretty good show, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I think it's hyped as. Probably of the early uh, WWF shows, really, maybe of the 80s, it's up there with probably WrestleMania 3 is one of the most fondly remembered shows. It's got the Heart Foundation uh, versus Arn and Tully on it. Um, yep. That and uh, Warrior versus Rude. Yeah. Rude was really good in 89, I have to say. Um, okay. So, September 18th, the last newsletter that we have. Um, the only real, it's a very slow month for news, NWA-wise, for Meltzer. Um, it's that Terry Funk has an arm infection, uh, and apparently this injury was legit. So, 
There we go. Let's go into uh, Clash of the Champions 8 then, Fall Brawl. Um, this happened on September the 9th, and it was in the uh, Carolina Coliseum. September the 9th or September the 12th? Oh, I had September the... Is this September the 12th, is it? Uh, Wikipedia says September the 12th, but who knows. I, I think I took it from the screen from the screen caption uh, that, that came up. And I'm more inclined to believe Wikipedia on this. So. Do we trust Wikipedia or WCW <laughs> production? That's the, uh, I, I, a, a dilemma. I think Wikipedia is probably correct on it. Uh, okay. But I could be, uh, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure. I mean, every, everywhere else seems to have it as the 12th, so. Okay. Um, and uh, this is in Columbia, is it? South Carolina? Yeah, Columbia, South Carolina, which is the uh, home of the University of South Carolina. Right. And the, the U.S. policy there of uh, having this multiple towns of the same name. Because <laughs> there's lots of other Columbias as well, right? Uh, there's, I mean, I'm sure there's a good many, but I would say of the uh, Columbia, South Carolina is the most prominent Columbia by far. That's the most famous one, right? Yeah. Uh, University of Columbia is that there, or is that different? That's in New York. Isn't that's, it? Yeah, that's in New York. Uh, South, the University of South Carolina is in Columbia, South Carolina. Right. Uni University of Columbia published my book in the states, by the way. Incidentally, available on Amazon for if you're interested. <laughs> <laughs> um. So anyway, we get a flashback to the end of uh, uh Great American Bash '89 uh, at the start here. Um, the the business with uh, Great Muta and Flair and Funk and Sting, um, that great post match, and I think it's fair to say one of the greatest post matches ever, right? Yeah. And our commentators are Jim Ross and Jim Cornette. So I don't know what uh, Bob Coddle's doing now, but Jim Cornette seems to have replaced him on commentary, uh, and I think they were also partners on the Power Hour at this time. So. Clearly, something had clicked there, and they decided to keep them on for the pay-per-view. Yeah, this is a interesting and uh, fun pairing. Um, I mean, right as we've talked about before, in 1989, they really had kind of a a big stable of announcers that they could sort of mix and match. Yeah, uh, but I, but I like this one. I'm well, as uh, as will be clear as we move through this. I was a massive fan of this particular commentary team. I think they. I think you can tell they're kind of friends in real life. That they get on, um, or at least, even if they're not friends in real life, which I'm sure they are, um, that they are kind, kind of, both big wrestling fans in real life, and that their kind of nerdery comes through at times on this uh, on this show. Would you agree with that? They kind of bring yeah. it out of each yeah. other. Well, yeah, they just know their spots. Um, they're very savvy, I would say. Yeah. There's a lot of talk. Oh, I, I should mention before we go, we go into this. Um, the, due to listener feedback, uh, and uh, because of concerns over the running time of these shows, this is going to be the first show we try without play-by-play. -play. So are you ready for this, Chad? Because uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> it means that uh, the ten minutes or so that I spend going through the matches aren't going to be there anymore. So we're going to go into a realm of pure analysis here. Are you ready for it? I'm ready. <laughs> um, there's a lot of talk about 
Gary Hart at the start of the show. Um, there's rumours of dissension in the Gary Hart camp. And we go straight to an interview with Gordon Soley and Gary Hart. Um, and Hart says there is no dissension. There are no problems in the camp. Um, so there we go. So this is uh, obviously a tease into how they're going to deal with this Terry Funk uh, problem. How do you think they actually dealt with this, uh, Chad? I thought it was pretty good, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, as a kind of, sort of, I guess, uh, kind of more of a scramble type angle, knowing Funk's arm, uh, as, a, as a plan B, I thought this was pretty good, what they came up with to deal with it. Yeah, I, I still, I'm not really getting Gary Hart himself, but I, I guess, you know, he did what was required here. He He seems very bland to me. Yeah, I, th- I thought actually this show was probably the best uh, from a promo standpoint we'd seen of him. Yeah, well, he certainly got a lot of mic time here. Um, but st- I mean, still, he's kind of, you know, I- I- I'm still not seeing uh, why he's in the conversation of great managers uh, based on based on this run uh, here. Um, our first match is the SST Simone SWAT team with Paulie Dangerously. Versus the Row Warriors. So quite a big uh, match here to start. And uh, uh, just a few things I've jotted down here to to get things going. Um, Quinette mentions uh, Bill Apter. Did you notice that? And the PWI Awards. Yeah. Yeah. It was this where he said, like, you know, it's an important event because Apter's in a suit. <laughs> I think that was a bit later on when it was. Oh, okay. <laughs> But um, he, he he did mention that uh, the Row Warriors is like six-time winners of the PWI awards, and uh, he kept on getting over the fact that um, the streak was only broken by the Midnight Express, which I thought was uh, really good from a continuity point of view for for Cornette. Um, but it was also a way of getting over the Aftermaths too, which was obviously really important for for them and for the rest of those at this time. Um, so well, how do you want to do this? Uh, do you want to just give us a rundown of the of the finish uh, before we do the analysis here, Chad. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I guess we can talk. I mean, this match is basically uh, kind of a helter skelter type match with uh, not 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 really a lot of rest holes. Um, they they work over Hawk for a good while, you know, a little bit of a while. It's six minutes long, so it's a pretty uh, pretty quick match, Hawk ends up going to a post, and then Paulie throws his uh, phone um, in, but uh, Hawk is able to kind of thwart that attack, and uh, Hawk hits the phone, uh, hits, I think, uh, was it Fatu or Simon, I can't remember, with the phone, Um, and then they give the doomsday device for the win, uh, the Road Warriors do. Right, and just after the match, the um, SST are pissed off with Paulie. Yeah, we start to see some kind of dissension among the ranks between them. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I mean, I thought this was a pretty good energetic opener. Uh, SST continue to me have been uh, pretty impressive and kind of a pleasant surprise. I've, yeah. I've, I've always thought that, I mean, the Head Shrinkers, the SST, I've always not hated them. But uh, but most of their matches so far that we've seen on these super shows have been uh, pretty high octane. Uh, they put in a good bit of offense in, and the Road Warriors look good here and showed uh, 
Hawk showed some pretty good glimpses of selling, so this was a good uh, Road Warriors performance as well. Yeah, I, I mean, I thought the Samoans looked good on top. Um, Samu is, uh, I, I think, a, a pretty decent worker from what we've seen of him. Um, the uh, animal looked pretty good doing his standard spots. You know, the uh, all, all of the usual spots were in there, you know, the power slam and the shoulder tackles and all the rest of it. Um, I did think, though, that the finish looked really awkward. Um, not not so much the Doomsday device itself, but the, the lead-up to that. So you had one of the SST um, was were like holding uh, uh, Animal, was it? They were holding Animal, and it, it took like forever for the phone to get there, and it was like, no way is he going to be holding him this long. I mean... It, it, did you notice that? It took like a good 30 seconds for... Yeah, I think it was a timing issue. It did look, uh, I don't know if uh, like uh, dangerously missed his cue or what, but uh, it was a kind of timing issue that was uh, kind of hindered a lot. Yeah, and, and then it, I, I don't know, then, then it seemed to take ages for the Doomsday device to actually happen. Like I don't know, it, I thought that would last uh, part of the match was very messy there. Um, from a booking point of view, I did think that the Road Warriors probably needed this win, as weird as that sounds. They, 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 like we said last year, they've kind of been doing nothing for quite a while now. Um, so this is a reasonably big win for them. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I, do. I mean, I think this is a nice win that still keeps them kind of um, recognized as a dominant tag team with NWCW or NWA. Uh, so this this was a good win for them. And, uh, you know, energetic and pretty fun for what it was as a match, too. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm just pulling up the uh, uh, Meltzer's uh, ratings here to see what he gave it. Uh, yeah, now the, yeah. <laughs> this, this uh, show, uh, as we'll get into with this show, I did like this show, but uh, in me reading Meltzer's ratings... Last night, there's going to be a uh, a lot of disagreements for me with some of these ratings. Three and a quarter, he goes here. Yeah, that, I mean, that, even though I did like this match, that to me seems pretty uh, generous for, I mean, it was six minutes. It was fun, but there wasn't much of a story, you know, told, essentially. It was a go, go, go type match. One of the weird things that I didn't notice that Meltzer picks up on here is that um, they weren't popping for Hawks kickouts. That they he, he reckons that the crowd weren't really getting behind uh, the role warriors as you'd expect. And he says this is where invincibility works against you. People don't believe there's a chance of actually seeing that pinfall, so it makes it hard to build up heat by long-term selling. I didn't notice that, to be honest. Did you? No, I didn't notice that either. Um, so. Yeah, I do this. Uh, I mean, maybe. This is a weird. I still think this is a weird little period for Rogue Warriors here. They're, they're still kind of bouncing around, not doing a lot. Um, yeah, they're kind of. I mean, they're they're certainly not the main focal point like they had been before. Um, so now they're kind of just one of a number, you know, in the tag division. So, so after this match, we got a cheesy video package hyping Halloween Havoc here, and I've just written here. Chad must like this because I remember you. <laughs> I remember you really like uh, uh, such a cheesy package. Uh, well, it seems like ages ago now. I can't remember what show it was, but uh, 
did you enjoy this themed Halloween? I, I like uh, I mean, I, Halloween Havoc is a show that I, I love the concept of it, but the video packages that they always did for it was always some of the uh, really the most corny stuff that WCW ever came up with. Uh, as we progress, you get you know the spin the wheel, make the deal. Tony Schiavone and the house scaring kids. There's all sorts of stuff coming up with Halloween Havoc. <laughs> uh, so what do you make of this particular package? Any good? I mean, this this one was fine, but like, like I said, on the on the spectrum of Halloween Havoc cheese, this is actually on the low end. <laughs> so be prepared. Um, our next match now, Havana's favorite, the Cuban Assassin. This is making his debut here. The Z-Man, Tom Zenk. So, our first look at two guys, really. We haven't seen the Cuban assassin before. Now, he, he um, as Jim Ross mentions, is a 10-year veteran at this point, And uh, really kind of made his name in the Puerto Rico. Uh, like, he worked that territory quite a lot. And right. um, he would go on, wouldn't he? to be on WCW for years. He was like a staple of Saturday Night as Top Gun and um, what's his other name? Uh, uh, Fidel Sierra. Yeah, I, I think he kind of just came in on I guess just random tours. I, I, don't, I don't know her kind of random stance with uh, WCW. He never did nothing. I mean, he never won like a championship with them. Uh, but and now he's somebody too. My Puerto Rican, my Puerto Rico viewing is very limited. Yeah, me too. Uh, so, so he's somebody that I'm not very familiar with. Uh, besides some of his stuff I remembered from WCW, and most of that was used as kind of enhancement stuff for another uh, star they were willing to push. So I don't exactly have like fond memories of the Cuban assassin. He's he's essentially a jobber, isn't he? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, in WCW terms, I think he was kind of used as more of a uh, a mid-range jobber, where it's not a you know you might could put him in there in sort of a showcase match to give somebody a win you're wanting to push, but he I, I don't think he's ever on another pay-per-view to be honest so would it, would it be fair to say he's kind of iron mike sharp level uh, yeah that's probably fair i mean i mean he's definitely a name that you would know yeah um but uh yeah not not a certainly not a uh not a big star or nothing in and, wcw and his opponent here the z-man i just written i think he's a poor man's rick martell a very poor man's Rick Martel. Um, what, any thoughts, any initial thoughts on Zenk? I mean, Z-Man's kind of weird in that he, uh, I think he has a good, a real good look, and he, he just seems like he, he seems like the type of wrestler that could never kind of put it all together. Right. I, I, I think he has certain tools and different attributes to where if he could, he could have been, uh, you know, a relatively big star. And I've seen matches with him, like in the 1990 yearbook, his match versus Flair. I thought Flair did a real good job of, uh, you know, carrying 
Zink through the match, but as we'll see as we progress in these shows in 1990 with his tag team with Pillman, I think, uh, I mean, I think Z-Man is capable of kind of hanging with the guys he's been with, but if he's the person that's going to be counted on to kind of make his own heat or carry a match, uh, he gets kind of lost in the shuffle, so. Yeah, he's, he's like the definition of a nothing mid-carder, Tom Zank, in my, in my mind. Um, he's just making up the numbers, really. Um, so, this is really just a, a three-minute squash match. Um, Zank ends it with a sleeper, uh, which Jim Ross says, Paul Bosch popularized in the 1940s. Nice bit of trivia there. Uh, I didn't know that. Yeah, me either. Uh, any any thoughts on this? What do you think of... Uh... <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is uh, used as a vehicle to try to get Zink over, and as I just stated, with him kind of being the uh, pushed into the forefront, and uh, this match was kind of dependent on Zink, whether it lived or died. And in this match, he did a lot of kind of arm drags, and... Not not a whole lot of really impressive stuff, so uh, it was not a very impressive debut. Certainly not as good as like the stuff we've seen with the Great Muda, like his kind of type showcase matches that we've seen on earlier clashes. They were a, a, a lot better than what we saw from Zink here. Yep, very unexciting uh, debut here. Um, really nothing to write home about at all. And I, I actually thought the Cuban assassin did did a few things to try to make the match more interesting in a in a rather limited way, but all he had to do really was sell some arm drags. Um, yeah. And what do you think of the sleeper as a finisher here? I mean, Ross. Yeah, yeah pretty weak. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Ross mentioning that it was big in the nineteen forties is kind of telling in a way. Um, who was the last guy to have a really big? Uh, Probably Bruce Beefcake had the sleeper as a finisher, right? Right. Yep. So I mean, I guess I guess around this time you're seeing a little bit of a renaissance with the sleeper as a finisher, but um, I mean, not one of my favorites because it's kind of a hold that, while it's good that it can be applied from a lot of positions. Yeah. It's it's, it's kind of tough to sort of build to the sleeper, right? You know what I mean? I mean, and it doesn't look vicious like the uh, when Samoa Joe was in Ring of Honor, his chokehold looked really good and looked like it could like pass you out or you'd have to tap out. Yeah. Uh, Sleeper usually doesn't look like it's uh, doing that much damage. Yeah, I mean, at least do a Cobra Clutch or a Million Dollar Dream or Taz Mission or something, you know, at least those, uh, or even a, like a cross-face chicken wing or something, at least all of those moves look... Uh, the Sleeper to me is a move that is in everybody's repertoire. Everybody can do it, you know. So it's right. not, uh, did Piper did the sleeper, didn't he? That was his move as well. Yeah, that's true too. Man, there's a lot, I guess. Yeah. Okay. I guess uh, it's not as bad. I mean, Hercules had the full Nelson as his finisher, so I mean, it's not. <laughs> it's not. It's not right at the bottom of the barrel as finishers go. Um. So yeah, n- nothing. Nothing much to say about this match. Um. We <laughs> now get taken. <laughs> The world, according to Theodore R. Long. Um, and as we get uh, 
he's got some record playing. Jam, off jam, I got. Um, so this is Theodore Long um, presenting some sort of radio show. He says, well, we put a little pimp into your step and put down enough gravel for everyone to travel. <laughs> so what did you think of this, Chad? I, I kind of like this. I think of uh, the, the personality we've seen with Teddy Long. This was probably the best oh, with him kind of in this recording studio and reading <laughs> up upcoming cards. Uh, I mean, I, I thought this was entertaining. Well, he says uh, Rick Steiner will be uh, eating some Big Macs near you soon. Uh, yeah. And he, he goes through some scoops. And, like, as he goes through the car, he essentially buries faces, doesn't he? Right, right. Um, he says, Flair when Flair gets the key to the city, uh, we're going to change all the locks. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. Not a bad line at all. Um, quite a fun way to promote your upcoming dates, I, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it sort of served a dual purpose, and uh, I thought that was successful. Yeah, and no, Teddy Long now covering up his uh, peanut head where, wherever he can. He yeah. Still, he still hasn't had his teeth fixed, though. He, he does get his teeth fixed, doesn't he? Like, Teddy Long now has got nice teeth, right? Yeah, I don't, I don't think they're certainly not as bad as what we've seen, so he had <laughs> some work done, at least. Now we get... Uh, I don't know if you got this on your... Uh, version of this, but I got a Cause Light Silver Bullet featuring Flying Brian. Did you get that? No, I did not. No. This was like an advert for Cause Light with Flying Brian kind of in a video package. They seem to like video showcasing Flying Brian because they've done it quite a lot. Um, so now, Ric Flair is with uh, Governor Campbell. Yeah, my uh, my uncle. <laughs> is he? He's not really your uncle, is he, Jack? <laughs> Governor Campbell is uh, declaring it Ric Flair Day in South Carolina. So uh, that's a pretty big honour. And um, I don't know, like in 1989, NWA seemed to be in big with uh, quite a lot of bigwigs. Quite a lot of officials and things really bought into the wrestling uh, promotion here. Um, and he, he's got this kind of declaration which he goes through um, I noticed that he <laughs> he says the word styling and profiling which is uh, you know this is a le legitimate politician so uh, quite amusing I guess um, and uh, yeah it's Ric Flair Day so what do South Carolinians get for, for Ric Flair Day a day off work or <laughs> um, probably I would guess that Probably nobody knew that it was Ric Flair Day till they saw this. I mean, I, I thought this was a kind of cool moment. And at least it does show in some regard how big of a star Flair could be, uh, especially in kind of the Carolinas area. Because, I mean, now I don't think, uh, I, I mean, maybe it happens. I just can't imagine like a governor presenting John Cena with, like, John Cena. But, I mean, but I guess they do declare usually the city of the WrestleMania will declare, like, WWE Day or whatever. But uh, usually it's kind of the mayor that's there. Like, I know in Atlanta, the mayor of Atlanta was the person that presented, uh, I think it was Triple H, with the key to the city or whatever. 
I mean, this had to have been at least semi-legit, right? Oh yeah, I mean, I'm sure it like legitimately was declared Flair Day in South Carolina, but that that you know that doesn't mean every every day is declared something for somebody in these states. So, what sort of activities do you think people got up to on Ric Flair Day? If they were genuinely, <laughs> if you were genuinely celebrating it, what would you do? <laughs> that would probably end up being kind of like. Uh, the equivalent of Mardi Gras in New Orleans <laughs> if there was a legitimate uh, Ric Flair day knowing his kind of personality and nightlife. It's a, it's happy hour in all of the bars. Yeah. And uh, drinks are on the bar. Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. Um, so, <laughs> I'd have, uh, I mean, if it was me, I'd have gone to school wearing shades. Uh, or else what I have done? I just styled and profiled. Uh, in class, I mean, what else can you do? It's a <laughs> doing Ric Flair day. Um, so, uh, speaking well, of well, actually, actually, one thing that I just reckon, I mean, his name was Carol Campbell. My uh, my aunt, her legitimate maiden name is Carol Campbell. Uh, <laughs> you know, as spelled with one L, of course, but uh, in right. one R. But uh, Carol Campbell. Yeah, I've never thought about that. Before she got married, she was Carol Campbell. So at the same, you know, she was not married at this time. So uh, it's kind of interesting. Well, why didn't you ask her if there's any, I mean, there, there could be some. I'll ask her if she <laughs> ever got confused as the uh, governor of South Carolina. Yeah, Carol is a girl's name. So, um, <laughs> I mean, you see Carol as a girl's name, right? I guess there's yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think uh, there's Carol Reed, the film director, predominantly a girl's name. Yeah. Oh, well, apparently there was a Carol Campbell female that was a. Oh, I've done went down a rabbit hole now. There's a Carol <laughs> Campbell female that was a politician as well. So. And it's not your own. No. It's not <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um. So, speaking of true Americans, I'm sure Carol Campbell, uh, both, all three versions of Carol Campbell, I'm sure, are all true Americans. Our favorite true American now. Uh, yes. all, all together, it's Ranger Ross. Ranger Ross, and his last appearance, I do believe. Oh, is this the last we're ever going to see of him? Yeah, I think this is the end of the road. Well, I, I, I think I might play the uh, national anthem for him. On the, on the actual <laughs> recording, we'll we'll give him a true send out. <laughs> and uh, who's yeah, this was uh, Ross's last major show? It says here. So yeah, oh, such a shame. Doesn't he crop up in like World War Three or something? <laughs> I, I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised if like you know in one of those times where they needed sixty guys on the card, Ranger Ross got like one last. Uh, no, he do, he doesn't crop up anywhere. <laughs> uh, I mean, when we get to the World War Threes, we'll probably have to have like our notepad ready <laughs> to see kind of the random people that showed up. I'm sure uh, we'll see Cuban assassin again in one of those. Surely, probably actually, like just, yeah. So, uh, um, and he's taking on uh, kind of a, the man of the moment, Sid Vicious, who's with uh, Teddy Long. And uh, Dan Spivey's hair here is absolutely atrocious. Did you see his hair? Yeah, it's it was uh, it was really bad. So this is a very short match. I think it lasts uh, about a minute. Uh, Ross does get in some token uh, offense here, but he eats a DDT. 
and then this kind of winning, weird spinning throw that Sid does, and then a big power bomb for three. Basic uh, squash match. Um, Jim Ross predicts that Sid would be world champion someday. Uh, I think you'd have to wait until 2000 for that prediction to come true in WCW, but of course he does have a run with the WF title in 96, is it? 96. Uh, 97. Uh, well, 96 and 97, yeah, actually both. Right, well, uh, what do you think of this as a, as a kind of send-off for Ross as a jobber and uh, also for Sid? Um, I mean, decent showcase for him, masking his limitations? Yeah, I mean, this wasn't bad. I mean, again, it was only a minute. Uh, but he was able to show off his kind of power bombs and different arsenal. So I, th- I thought it was okay uh, in making him look sort of like a badass. Whenever Sid does a power bomb, I do tend to cringe because it, yeah. he could break somebody's neck. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think there's definitely sort of a reckless um, attitude with him kind of doing the power bomb, where, yeah, it is kind of cringe-worthy. What was that spinning throw thing he did? I've never seen that before. See, I, I rewounded that twice to try to hear what Ross called it. It was like, I couldn't tell if he called it, like, the twirly bomb <laughs> or the twirly bird power bomb. Um, it was kind of weird. If anybody knows the correct name, because it sounded like he said, like, a twirly bird power bomb, but, uh, yeah, it was pretty neat. You ever seen anyone do that before? I haven't. Uh, trying to think. I, d- I don't recall right no. offhand. So, it, yeah, it was an interesting move. The closest thing I can think of is Berserker. Yeah, and, uh, I mean, and Sid did hit a DDT here, so, I mean, he did have three between the DDT, that kind of spinning powerbomb, and then the regular powerbomb. He had uh, three pretty distinctive moves. Yeah, not a lot else to say here. I mean, I, Sid is very over. That's the only real takeaway here. He, he's, he's carried on this momentum now two months later after he was so over at the uh, Great American Bash. So they, they must be thinking of some sort of face turn for him soon, surely. I mean, the crowd seems to be gagging to cheer for him. Would you agree with that? Yeah. I, I think he's over, but uh, I don't think they're willing to turn him face, as we'll see. It's a weird thing with Sid, uh, that he um, he always seems to get over as a heel. Like, he, he gets cheered here, he gets cheered in 92 against Hogan, and he gets cheered in 96 against uh, Sean, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah, I think he has, I mean, sometimes I think Sid has sort of like a cool, badass presence. That if he goes against a kind of baby face that's seen as whiny, yeah. uh, it really kind of hurts him. And I, I mean, I think because in some regards, like, Sid didn't play off the bully card as much as he should have at no. points. But I also think that he, I mean, he is also prone to uh, what you call mugging, Chad. To the Yeah, think- yeah, he does do that a lot too, where he'll, like, do his little thing where he... Uh, kneels down with his arms outstretched for the crowd and stuff like that. Yeah, unusual, unusual guy, Sid. I, I guess we'll see him a lot more over the years. Um, I can't wait. <laughs> Missy Hyatt and uh, Robin uh, Green now. 
who is a woman, right? She, it's, yeah, uh, yeah, woman. Nancy Sullivan. Nancy Benoit, yeah, Nancy Sullivan. Um, they're going shopping now uh, to the strains of Madonna's Material Girl. And um, basically what happens here is that uh, Robin is maxing out Rick Steiner's American Express card buying jewelry and other things. <laughs> she, she's Robin Green from uh, Rick Steiner. Do you get that kind of pun? Oh yeah. Yeah. I didn't I didn't get that. That's pretty good. Yeah. Robin Green. <laughs> yeah. Hilarious. So th- this actually reminded me of uh of the shopping with a million dollar man. Uh skit. Did you ever see that? Yeah. Yeah, this is uh <laughs> this is pretty good kind of getting the personalities across uh of each woman. And they were kind of teasing a heel turn already here, I thought, because Missy Hyer is clearly not buying as much as Robin Green. And she's... Right. Uh, interesting. Robin Green. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> as we come back to Jim Ross and uh, Jim Cornette here, <laughs> Cornette couldn't look any nerdier than he does. Like, he, he does this <laughs> quite humorous face whenever he's talking about women. And, um, I don't know, I find it quite endearing. I really like Jim Cornette in this... Uh, Kind of, he's still kind of a baby face at this point, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, they're still, uh, they're still pretty much uh, baby faces, full fledged right now. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, a very likable duo, uh, Ross and Cornette. Um, more so, uh, more so Cornette. I, I still get this feeling that Jim Ross is just like not a very nice guy, secret like, and it, and it kind of comes through as well. Um, yeah, but yeah, I kind of, I quite like that about him. Um. So Gordon Sully's with the Freebirds here, uh, Jimmy Garvin and uh, Michael Hayes. I think Gordy's gone at this point. And um, we get a lot of the use of the word stinking. Uh, yeah, this is, this is not a good promo. <laughs> this, this, I think, is one of the most 80s promos I've ever heard. It's like really, really 80s. They come across as um, like what I'd imagine like stereotypical thugs from Teen uh, Ninja Turtles, you know? Like kind of uh Yeah, yeah, like kind of a, <laughs> a villain character. Uh, the, the, yeah, this was bad. Jimmy Garvin did most of the talking. Hayes didn't seem very interested to say anything or to do the interview at all. And, uh, yeah, Jimmy said stinking about five <laughs> times. I wrote that down. It was... It was a putrid promo, actually. Rocksteady and Bebop. That's the guys I was thinking of. The uh, the Rhino and the... <laughs> Do you ever watch uh, Turtles, or was that before your time, Jeff? Uh, a little bit before <laughs> my time. I know them, but I uh, never watched them besides like the main turtle names. The, the only real thing of note here is that Hayes says that they're really not getting enough respect as uh, world champions. Um, which they're still they're still world champs at this point. Right. <clears throat> Next match, Norman the Lunatic with Teddy Long. So Norman's still around. Well, here. I, I, wait, I think the tag match was before that. It was on my card. Oh yeah, you're right. Sorry, so, I'm sorry. I've, I've done my typical thing of missing an entire <laughs> side of A4. The notes. There you go. <laughs> it's the fabulous Freebirds versus the Steiner Brothers. Um, and the Steiner brothers come out with Missy Hyatt and Robin uh, Green. Yeah, so uh, welcome to the jungle. 
probably the most uh, generic wrestling theme <laughs> in the history. No, as the, as they were coming out, I couldn't help but think there must be a heel turn coming up for one of these two girls. There's no way that the Steiners are going to continue with two valets for much longer. Right. Um, so that was pretty telegraphed, I thought. Um, not a lot of heat for the Freebirds, uh, it has to be said. Um, I mean, the music was playing pretty loud, but I couldn't really hear any fan reaction. Could you? Yeah, it did seem like they were too over, really, in this in this uh, show. They start uh, shilling this hotline number. Uh, where you can dial up and listen to Lance Russell and your favourite Chad, Joe Pedicino, uh, yeah. on uh, on commentary. And Ross actually suggests turning the sound down and putting them on. Um, why would you have ever done that? Yeah, that that seems weird. That is something that they always uh, talk about as we get in as you get into the 1990 yearbook when they do the rundown of the hotline. On, I, th- I think it was like Monday night in 1990. It was like Lance Russell calls live matches. So I guess they got him to call the matches at the house show, mm. uh, which which at like a dollar, I think it was like 99 cents per minute. I can't imagine how much how expensive that would be if you called up and I mean, can you imagine calling up and listening to a whole house show? That'd be like a couple hundred dollars to listen <laughs> to him do commentary or something. It's ridiculous. Insane. I wonder if those have ever surfaced. Any like anybody was if anybody was mad enough a to ring that number, b to listen to it all that time, and c to somehow record it. Yeah, I, <laughs> I think that's the logic gap. Having the sanity to. <laughs> <laughs> We're looking. We're looking for like a one. Literally, that's like a one in a billion. That person who's willing to do that, right? And then upload it to the internet twenty years later. <laughs> um. So, yeah, I mean, this was a this was a kind of back and forth uh, match. Uh, a very spotty style from the Steiners. Uh, I've written here um, all about the big bombs, left, right, and centre. Um. D- I mean, it kind of goes back and forth. Um, Steiners are generally on top, I'd say. The um, Freebirds are rather desperate when they're on top. They come across as uh, being scared of losing more than anything else. Um, Typical Hayes strutting. And we get two Frankensteiners uh, by Scott Steiner for the finish. Um, But then he gets tripped coming off the ropes. And uh, Hayes hits a DDT for the three. So we'll we'll, we'll get onto the me- the complications of the finish in a, in a second. But what did you think of this one, Chad? Um, I, I mean, I thought the Scott in this match. He's somebody I thought would look pretty good up to, or you know good up to this point. Here he seemed more reckless and sloppy. Yeah. Than any you know, other point, we had like an ugly, real ugly roll up in the uh, opening minutes, and he was just sort of wasting people with a German suplex. Both Frankensteiners looked uh, pretty reckless. Rick, in this match, had more of his kind of dog mannerisms where he was barking and crawling around like a dog at one point. Uh, The Freebirds kind of hazed that dude, to me, a lot at all with this match. And Garvin... He kind of switched from throwing some nice punches to the only uh, 
only rest hold in the match was him kind of randomly locking on a chin lock yeah. in the middle, which sort of slowed the match down. So he was kind of good and bad. Uh, I don't, I don't think I like Meltzer gives this match three and a half stars. I know I didn't like it that much at all. Yeah. Uh, probably in like the two to two and a half star range. That, I mean, they had a good pace for the ten minutes. It was kind of a no nonsense type match that had a like a feverous pace, but I, I, I didn't really like it. I thought the work was sloppy, um, yeah. not very enjoyable. And I, then with the finish, as we can talk about now, I, I I'd actually go lower than that, Chad. To be honest, I mean, um, I thought Scott Steiner was extremely sloppy in the early exchanges with Hayes. Like his arm drags were odd. I like I've never seen such bad arm drags. Like when you're on a show when Tom Zenk is doing better arm drags than you, that's that's unusual. Then he had that like massive belly to back suplex and he seemed to release it early, like basically drop Garvin on his head. Um we got uh uh we kinda got a release belly to belly suplex by by Rick and then like one of the worst slingshot suplexes ever by him. Did you see that? Where he Yeah, uh, yeah that was bad too. And then the Frankensteiners looked horrible at the end. Like, so, all, lots of bombs, but the execution here was almost kind of Dan Spivey levels of bad. You know, it's like, I don't know, this was a real off night for the Steiners, I thought, from their right. point of view. Um, and I'm like, I'm not like a guy who's all about execution, but when it's like noticeably sloppy, that is going to take away from the match, I think. Well, and to me, this match was built around the execution of the uh, execution and pace. Yeah. I mean, it, it, they, they weren't telling a clear body control uh, storyline or any other storyline. It was, uh, you know, a, a fast pace and throwing bombs. So. Yeah, which makes me wonder, which actually makes me think that Mike Rotunda and, uh, and whoever he was tagging with for Varsity Club it was Sullivan in one match and Williams and like I it kind of makes me think that those guys were doing more to carry those matches than we may have seen at the time. Um, I don't know, or it could have just been a really bad night for the Steiners, or a bit of both. I don't know. Yeah, probably a combo. Um, just before we get to the finish here, Jim Ross has got this weird line that he kept on going on about that the Steiners are into eating and training, training and eating. Did did you hear him go on about that? I, I didn't make a note of that, but I, it does sound kind of weird. Strange. Um, so, yeah, this finish was basically something happened to Scott Steiner as he came off the ropes. Uh, first of all, it looked like he slipped, but then it kind of became clear that one of the two women had tripped him. Um, but the camera kind of accidentally on purpose missed him. Um, so the commentators and the commentators were both looking at the monitor, so they they missed it too. Um, and Jim Ross says he heard somebody in the crowd say it was uh, Robin Green, but um, Scott was making out like it was Missy High Up. So I thought this was a really interesting little finish here. Yeah, it was it was kind of a good way to develop. I mean, the camera angles were admittedly bad, and, and I, I think the best thing actually that Ross said was that it was her. That's what the person in the crowd said, so that yeah. still made it kind of vague on which her he was referring to. Yeah, I mean, my money's I mean, on my I money's mean, on Robin Green, by the way. If I had to do guess, what now? my money is on Robin Green. If I had to guess, uh, yeah, it was. I mean, Scott was pointing at Robin Green, and then 
Rick came and pointed at Missy, which he was on the whole other side of the ring, so I don't know how he could have possibly have seen it, but uh, it, it was pretty interesting the way they did that. No, d- decent as far as uh, turns go. I, I, I'm guessing they didn't turn straight away, that they teased it for another few weeks. Uh, yeah, it's probably, uh, I mean, I, honestly, by Halloween Havoc, I can't remember, but uh, it, it may have already happened by then. I'll have to go back and see. Um, so, yeah, I mean, honestly, for, the, for that match, I go one star, which seems ridiculously harsh, but, you know, you, I don't think you can get away with uh, such sloppy work. Uh, and if I mean if we we have, if we're going to be in any way consistent here, if if we're dogging on Dan Spivey for what he did last time out, we have to do the same for the Steiners. Um, and that has actually made me interested now to go back to some of their other big matches coming up in the 90s, which I first time round was high on. I wonder. I mean, if if they're anywhere near as sloppy as that, I definitely won't be high on them now. So I, that's something I'm interested to see. Um, Norman the Lunatic uh, is now actually out with Teddy Long, and he's taking on Flying Brian. So I, I've got it right this time. Um, yes. And, well, in this match, um, so as this is starting, I'm thinking, what can they possibly do here? I can't see how this match is going to go at all. But then, amazingly, Brian hits uh, Norman the Lunatic with a suplex. He gets in with a body slam and a backdrop on Norman. Um... And uh, Norman gets some offense in two. He, he does like a big splash off the second rope. And um, really, my feeling was that this was way better than I had, like way, way better than you'd ever expect uh, a match like this to be. Norman was really good on uh, offense. Uh, he was great at selling the big moves for Pillman. Um, it was a good showcase for Pillman to get him over. Yeah, all all quite good. Do you, you have the same impression, Chad? Um, I, I mean, I like this. I I think I'm probably lower on this match than uh, what I've read and seen, and and part of the reason to that is I do agree that Norman bumped well for Pillman, and Pillman was flying all over the place. But uh, the way this match was set up, kind of two things were established. One, I don't really know if you can take Norman seriously. You know, as as uh, as seriously as you could take Norman the Lunatic as a character to begin with. After this, he you know was kind of on the uh, he was on the ropes, so to speak, for most of this match versus Pillman. And the other thing was, I kind of would have liked, in some instances, a little bit more struggle. Mm. Uh, so, like like Pillman was able to slam Norman the second time he attempted it. So, to me, a lot of his moves kind of felt like they came a little bit too easy, and he gave too much damage. It's a, it's a short match, again, so it's it's sub-four minutes, and they did do a lot with four minutes, uh, but I, I did kind of have some problem with the structure of this match. Like, I know Meltzer says it's too short mm. to be three stars, but he can't give anything lower than three stars. And again, there's no way I would give this match uh, three stars for what they did. In- interesting analysis there, Chad. And now that you point those things out, it is glaringly obvious. I, I mean, I think my reaction was just that I was expecting nothing 
and to see Norman visually just to see him take a suplex and a backdrop um, is something you don't expect but now, now you mention it, it did, it did all seem too easy and um, it does kind of bury Norman a little bit here as well. I mean, it's yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I'm interested to see where other people weigh in on this match because I do know that like, uh, like one of the favorites of pro wrestling only right now is Jerry Blackwell. Mm. Um, and and Norman's bumping in this match kind of reminded me a lot of uh, Jerry Blackwell's bumps. Um, and while I do like Jerry Blackwell and think he does show more of a vicious edge. Some of the same complaints that I have with Norman here, I, I do have for Blackwell, where, you know, Blackwell's bumping like he just got shot out of a cannon versus Greg Gagne. <laughs> uh, you know, some yeah. of these kind of lower level or uh, lightweight competitors. No, I, 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 do, I do see that as criticism. I, I think with Blackwell, his selling is so good that you kind of forgive it. Um, yeah. I mean, he's almost like kind of like the Mister Perfect of Fat Man, if that makes right. any sense. Yeah, that's a good. Ex- yeah, that's a good uh, uh, comparison, actually. Um, but yeah, I mean, th- th- some of those complaints though are kind of like AWA match structure again. I mean, it's it's happening. The more I watch, it's happening less and less. But especially in the early, in the you know eighty to eighty-five type time the faces get a lot of those matches and it doesn't matter who's in there um the faces are dominating you know 60 70% of the matches including you know mismatches like Greg Garner versus uh, Blackwell and things like that um so and we also get uh we also get a, a face run from Blackwell later on um where obviously he gets more on on offense so we kind of get get to see both sides, um, but yeah, I mean, back to Norman the lunatic here. It's it's weird. I always think it's weird to have a big man in a squash match. I never liked it when they used to do it to Viscera. Do you remember when Viscera would have like yep. three yep. three minute jobs? Um, doesn't it just demolishes believability really? Um, yeah, I mean, Norm, Norman didn't do a ton after this, but he still was around. For a good bit, uh, and I mean, I don't know. It's kind of a conflicting match because it was, I mean, it was interesting to watch. And for four minutes, like I said, they did do a lot of stuff that's memorable, like his splashes and uh, the missile drop kick from Pillman. Uh, but I just had a few kind. Of, I mean, I kind of would have liked something better with maybe like Norman or Pillman getting a little hot start. Norman squashing him on one of his splashes. Then taking over for a couple minutes, leading to you know a big flurry and the pinfall for Pillman, uh, something like that. I'd have been more okay with. It, now after this match, Teddy Long goes nuts on uh, Norman the Lunatic. Shade, yeah. Shades of both Bobby uh, Heen and uh, uh, WrestleMania Six on Andre, and also um, times when you you feel that Kim Chi and whoever else is managing Kamala are bullying Kamala. Um, right. And uh, I smell a bit of a face turn coming. Uh, not quite yet, it seems. I mean, Norman doesn't uh, knock Teddy Long out here, but um, yeah. What do you think of this uh, little bit here? Are we gonna? Uh, get... I mean, yeah, this was okay. Um, 
it does seem sort of like uh, Norman's. I mean, you're seeing a lot of teases on this show, really, of kind of uh, people turning or different things being shaken up. So this was fine. Okay. I'm getting a massive echo here, Chad, for some reason. Hold on. So Gordon Soley is with Gary Hart, um, and something is up with Terry Funk. He says that it's nothing, that Terry Funk is here in the building. So, so Soli's basically saying something's wrong with Terry Funk, I know it. Um, and Hart plays it down yet again. Um, so it's just continuing that little angle, really. Now we get Mike Rotunda versus Dr. Death Steve Williams. And Rotunda is still in his Varsity Club gear and has the Varsity Club music here. Um, so this goes on a lot longer than I, I seem to think. I thought he'd still he'd be in Captain Gear by this point, but seemingly not. Yeah. Now during this match, uh, Jim Ross and uh, Cornette go absolutely wild on the collegiate backgrounds of these two guys. Did you notice this? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they went nuts for it, um, pointing out the parallels between the two. How Mike Rotunda was a defensive tackle and Williams was uh, what do they call it, o- offensive line. Yes. Um. Yeah, they really went for it. Then, uh, at another point during this match, uh, Jim Cornette compares Williams to Mike Myers from Halloween, and then seamlessly, Jim Ross immediately uh, starts shilling Halloween Havoc. Did you notice that little moment? <laughs> yeah. uh, so, what happened in this? So we got some cartoony selling of a thumb to the eye by Williams, I noticed. Um, and in the finish, Tommy Young... It was a weird finish. Uh, they were going for some sort of... Was it a shotgun, really? Um, in the ropes? Well, like, like uh, Williams was going power slam Rotunda, and Rotunda, to block it, grabbed the ropes with his arms. Right. And then Tommy Young kicked Rotunda's arms, so that kind of made a momentum spot where he fell on top of Williams, but Williams was able to reverse it and uh, pin Rotunda. It was kind of weird. Like a referee-assisted finish. I, I, I didn't like it at all. Uh, yeah, I, didn't like the finish either. So, I mean, we kind of got a freak pin and it kept Rotunda strong. So Rotunda came out with this match with his head kind of held high because it was seen as a freak occurrence. Um, but yeah, I mean, I didn't think much of this match at all. What did you think? Yeah, um, I'm going to go back uh, after giving him a little bit of a reprieve the past couple of shows. I'm back on the uh, hating Rotunda bandwagon with this performance because here he... Uh, he he started out really good where he, where uh, Williams was running in for the charge in the corner and Rotunda caught him with his good clothesline. Uh, but again, in this match, this was a seven minute match, and with Rotunda on offense and on top, he did an abdominal stretch, he did a chin lock, he did kind of all these heel tactics of grabbing the ropes, and it just. It again seemed to me the thumb to the eye. Even it just again seemed to me like uh, like he read a heel wrestling book 101 and was you know kind of utilizing. It it almost seems like a wrestling school student 
uh, trying to impress the trainer by showing all the heel tactics he knows by uh, grabbing the ropes, doing the thumb to the eye. Uh, not, nothing was focused on his attack with the abdominal stretch. And actually the post-match brawl where he lays out Williams, uh, I thought he showed a lot more viciousness, and I enjoyed that a lot more than what we saw during the match from him. Yeah, I, I think it's safe to say that Rotunda's hot streak is over with this match. Um, but it, it also wasn't a particularly great showing for Williams either, who's also been better on recent shows. Um, he did do the um, spot where he military pressed Rotunda five times, though, which is quite impressive. Um, but yeah, I mean, back 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 to uh, the status quo with both of those guys, I think, with this match. Um, and this got three stars. To yeah, Meltzer. Meltzer gave that three stars. What's his justification for that? I don't really understand. Uh, such a this this match again seems to be. Uh, I mean, even on the other reviews I've read, it's a lot of people seem to like this more. I mean, he says both guys worked hard and was solid here. So I mean, that means nothing. I actually think Rotunda and Williams don't have a lot of chemistry. Like, I mean. We've seen that Rotunda has great chemistry with Rick Steiner and also with Scott Steiner, you could say. I, I don't think that they really click in this match at all. Right. Gordon Soley's with Alex Luganow, who says that he, um, he transcends wrestling. He says he's bigger than wrestling and that he's the total package in both. Uh, that means he's the combination of a supreme body and supreme intellect. Were you marking out for this, Chad? As a yeah, I, I like this promo a lot. Uh, he called himself like the showpiece of the NWA. Uh, this, this, I thought this was a really good promo. Luger looked like a star. Yeah, no, he he was really good here, and uh, I I wonder if all the people who rag on Lex Luger and shoot interviews and things are, are thinking of this particular promo because this is the kind of attitude that you always uh, hear about with Lex Luger that he he thinks he's bigger than wrestling um, if he did really think that then Luger's kind of drawing on his real life character isn't he All right. Um, anyway he, he's this is definitely the most effective he's been on the mic uh, that we've seen this little stretch here this heel run <clears throat> next match now it's Lex Luger defending his US title against Wildfire Tommy Rich. And now is this the first time we've 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 seen Rich? I think it is, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I think so. Actually, maybe he he may was he in one of the early arcades? I don't know. It it it's been a while if we have seen I, him. I don't recall him at all. Yeah, I don't recall him either. So it may be the first time. Yeah, I mean, he's not in the best sh- best shape of his career here. He's got quite big, uh, gut, noticeably big stomach at this point. Um, but any thoughts on Tommy Rich as a, as a worker? How much have you seen of him, etc.? Yeah, um, Tommy Rich to me is somebody that, you know, when you first start kind of with my age, when I first started reading about the, uh, you know, past wrestling history and stuff like that, you always sort of first thing you see about him was someone that kind of, allegedly did favors to win the NWA world title or whatever and kind of had a hot little run in Georgia at that point in time, but really kind of burned hot and really cooled off after that. But the the more I've watched, the more I've really liked Tommy Rich. I think he's a very, very uh, 
underrated person in most uh, internet wrestling circles. He's got to be a reasonably big star in uh, your part of the world, in, uh, in Georgia, right? He, like That's where he made his name. Yeah, I mean, he was a big draw uh, in Georgia, especially in the early 80s, and seemed to have some cachet uh, even later on in his career as well. So, um, as this match starts, I noticed a sign in the crowd <laughs> which said, The Untotal Package. And uh, that's getting the uh, award for the least witty sign ever. The untotal package. How, how long did it take them to come up with that one, I wonder? Um, and I thought Jim Cornette does an absolutely amazing job on commentary here of running down uh, Rich's career achievements to date. Um, he does note that uh, Tommy's been in a slump of late, but now he's on the comeback trail. And uh, I actually thought this was like one of the best bits of commentary that we got. Did did you uh, notice this? This uh, yeah, he, he was good here. Uh, I really like Ross and Corny on commentary together. I think they kind of bring out the best in each other. Um, so the story here with this match is that Rich um, is, for the most part, out wrestling Luger, um, with Luger getting more and more frustrated with him. So yeah, so he mentions that Mike Tyson and Don King uh, are watching this show, and that they're big uh, NWA fans. Um, and then, essentially it takes Luger a long time to get his uh, control sequence, uh, and when he does, he can't really stay on top for long. Um, and, I mean, really it's the story of a cocky, arrogant, young heel against Rich trying to reclaim his former glory. To prove that he still got it. Um, what do you think of this one? I, I, I like this match a good bit. I did think uh, while Luger didn't have a ton of time on top, uh, when he did, he really focused on Tommy Rich's back uh, yeah. really well. Um, and then they they showed this one, uh, probably the most vivid thing uh, was they showed this camera angle from the turnbuckle where Luger went for a splash. And, and the camera angle really showed that Luger just barely missed the splash from the top rope. And uh, it, it was a really cool spot. Uh, but Luger, you know, he gave him a, a backdrop, a superplex, a lot of stuff on the back, a sidewalk slam. And then uh, Rich comes back with a fist drop in his comeback, hits the Thez press. Uh, they end up going outside and in a cool spot, Tommy Rich punches the post, which looked really good. Uh, and then he tries to punch Luger again, but of course his hand is broke now. And uh, and uh, the the finish was a little kind of abrupt with the hot shot and uh, kind of dazed Rich and Luger covered him. So I wasn't crazy about the finish. And I and I am not going to give Luger a pass in this match because he was getting cheered pretty heavily from the crowd, and he did do some mugging. <laughs> for the crowd, so I will not give him a pass, even though I've been a pretty big Luger fan. This was, to me, his most uh, egregious example of him doing that so far for the crowd, but uh, as far as the actual storyline execution in this match, I thought it was really good. Yeah, I thought he looked excellent on top, Luger, um, and he's actually got quite a lot, lot in his locker now, hasn't he? That sidewalk slam, I don't think I've seen him do that before. Superplex, yeah. I mean, he's got a lot of stuff to do now. Um, which was was really my major uh, criticism of him in the flare matches in '88, if you remember, 
he didn't really have a lot to do. Um, and Tommy Rich, I thought, looked uh, pretty good uh, in this match. I did think that he looked absolutely exhausted uh, by the time we got to the end of this. Like, he was visibly sweating, and he was knackered, right? Would you agree? Yeah, he uh, he is somebody that really kind of uh, perspires a lot in his matches. Yeah. Uh, so that's kind of a, that'll be a recurring theme from when we see him. But when he made his comeback, it looked like a really good comeback, I thought. Um, yeah. And he sold well, and he looked good, uh, you know, his punches were good and things. And um, uh, yeah, the fin- this finish was strange, because he kind of got Luger with a sleeper when he was on the outs when Luger was standing on the outside of the ropes. So I I don't really understand the thinking of uh Rich there. And he also did something which would have annoyed Brian uh Samek, which uh, is um he thinks he's at one point he thinks he's won the match. Um do, do you remember when that happened? When uh Yeah, that was uh where Luger got a foot on the rope. Yeah. Um on a pinfall. So that was kind of madly annoying, but at least he didn't Immediately, the referee told him that he didn't win, so uh, that wasn't a terrible example of that, at least. Reasonably good comeback match for uh, Tommy Rich here. I think they put him over as well as they could on TV here, while still having him pinned by Luger. Do you agree with that? Yep, I agree. Yeah. Okay. Well, it was good to see him uh, still, you know, in the upper mid-card here, sort of. Um Funk is in hospital uh, with a, his hand in a cast, um, and he tells us that this is from uh, Ric Flair beating him with a branding iron, and that it's now got infected. He promises that he will get Flair at Clash 8, though. So, um, and Jim Ross does uh, tell everyone that this was a pre-record. Um, yeah, I mean, like we said, not a bad way of explaining where Funk is. That they're essentially telling the truth. Right. Gordon Soley's with uh, Sting and Ric Flair. Flair cuts quite a cool promo about um, love and war. And uh, I quite like this face version of Flair here in uh, 89. Um, Sting says some stuff too. Um, the main um, the main note I've got from Sting's little promo was that the heels' hearts are beating baboon, baboon, baboon. <laughs> so... I have to admit, I haven't really liked uh, Sting much on the mic so far. He's not very, not particularly great promo. He's just excitable, right? Just yeah, he's kind of goofy, excitable. Yeah. Now, um, I, oh, and as we go from that, did you notice that Gordon Soli called uh, Gary Capetta Gary Caputa? I did not notice. <laughs> go over to Gary Caputa now. Um, so now, main event: Sting and Ric Flair versus the Great Mutarand. Dick Slater. Dirty Dick Slater, who also has his uh, arm in a cast. Um, and that was the angle that didn't air on the on the, on the the show that was recorded, but didn't uh, make it onto TV. Um, Great Mooters won the TV title from Sting a few days before this, so he's the new TV champion. Uh, so, what happens in this match? I mean, Mooter seems to be playing heel in peril for the first part of it. Uh, um, Gary Hart somehow gets a branding iron from seemingly out of nowhere. Uh, nobody spots him how he got that to the ring. Um, and what what else happens? We kind of get 
quite a long um, flare plays facing peril for a while, and then we get a hot tag, and then sting plays facing peril for a while, and when we get hot tag to flare for the finish, as you'd imagine on flare day. Um, now, my first note on this is that Dick Slater's facials, facial expressions during this match are extremely goofy. I mean, he is just got, he's ridiculous in this match. Do you notice this, Chad? Yeah, one thing, kind of a knock on uh, Dick Slater is that he's kind of like a poor man's Terry Funk. And uh, in this match where he actually subbed for Terry Funk, you kind of see that kind of forced to the forefront. Because uh, here, when he came in, he sort of had this weird sort of jabbing motion with his hands that he was punching the air with. Yeah. And then he also, uh, yeah, his, his facial expression, he had this weird kind of demeanor look <laughs> on his face the whole time. It was, it was, it was pretty strange. Uh, kind of unfortunate because his actual work in the match was good. It was just kind of, in some ways, tough to get past that. Early on, I mean, I mean to me, this match, the baby faces had a lot of offense. Uh, early on, though, there was a really cool s sequence where Muda hit Flair with the spinning back kick, and he went to the outside, and then Muda uh, immediately crossbodies Flair, but then Sting immediately comes down and crossbodies Muda on the floor, and then uh, Slater ends up going to the outside, too, and all four are brawling. They kind of worked up. This was probably about six, seven minutes into the match, and they really worked up to that spot um, in a good way. And, uh, I mean, I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd like to see, this was a longish match, 19 minutes. I'd like to see a little more time given to, uh, to Sting and Flair on the, uh, defense or the face in peril. But they did cut a really intense pace for this, uh, for this match. So, uh, I mean, I've got a few notes here. Like, I think Slater's punches are really good when he does do them. I mean, his face is so bizarre. It's just really silly what he's up to. I mean, I mentioned um, I mentioned 80s, like, turtles-type thugs. Uh, in this match, Dick Slater reminds me of the uh, end boss of the first level of Final Fight, the uh, arcade game from 1989. Uh, if anybody knows what I'm talking about there, uh, the <laughs> that guy does a similar kind of uh, generic thug face. Um... But, uh, yeah, I mean, there, there was a, a segment where they focused quite well on Flair's neck. Uh, yeah. And he yep. sold it well. He actually sold that neck well over a period as well. Like, a few minutes later, he did this kind of weird neck roll motion to show that his neck was still hurting. Um, I thought Sting, when he got the hot tag, and it, was a, it wasn't really a hot tag because they didn't go into the finish then. Um, it was kind of, I don't know what you'd call it, the false hot tag or something. I thought he was very disappointed. Um, disappointing when he came in there. Like, he didn't really have any fire, felt really anticlimactic when he finally got that tag. Um, and then, I actually thought that the last five, six, seven minutes of this match were a total mess. Um, it took ages uh, for um, Sting to uh, cover. There was a moment where uh, Gary Hart came in and nailed Sting with a roll of coins. Yes. And it, it took absolutely a, like a long time for Muta to go over and cover Sting after that happened. I didn't really understand why. What what, what was he waiting for? 
and it was obvious at that point that he was going to kick out of that. So that kind of took away from that moment. Um, that was the false finish, and then eventually we get the the hot tag to Flair. Uh, as you as you can imagine, on Flair Day, he has to be the hot, the final hot tag, really. And uh, yeah, I just thought there was something weirdly messy about all of this. And then Funk hits the ring and puts a plastic bag over Flair's head, um, which made uh, people mark out quite a lot. Uh, but in my mind, this was mostly a clusterfuck. Um, all over the place. Maybe that was the uh, thought that this is going to be a chaotic brawl or something, but yeah. um, I don't know, like, everybody that I've looked at, Matt Petticord, Scott Keith, Meltzer here, have, has gone at least four stars on this match. Some have even gone as high as four and a half. Uh, your thoughts on how you'd rate all this? Yeah, this one, um, this is one probably the only instance really on this show where I kind of agree with sort of the status quo uh, because I did, I mean, my main criticism for this match would have been I'd have liked a little more uh, face and peril sequences. Muda, I didn't really notice that it took him a terribly long time to cover Sting after the roll of coins. Um, I mean, but he was being worked over like Sting was about to put him in the Scorpion Death Lock when that happened, so um, that that happened, and then I, d- I really loved the scene at the end, though, from where Muda uh, missed Sting, Flair tries to lock in Muda in the figure four, but Slater breaks it up with the cast, Flair starts bleeding everywhere, Funk comes out with this huge cast on his arm, I thought the plastic bag was a unique and dangerous kind of way uh, to really get over the chaotic feel of the match. Um, and again, uh, and then they hit Sting in the leg with the branding iron too, which was really well done. And the end sort of sees uh, Sting covering up Flair, so I enjoyed that. I mean, I, th- I think to me the ending of this match was just one step down from uh, the Great American Bash, but still really, really good stuff for all. It really hit with me. Uh, I'd probably go about four stars for the tag as a whole. Yeah, I mean, I thought the plastic bag was cool, but uh, I I have to admit that um, I didn't like. I didn't think that if the if what they were going for here was a chaotic brawl, I didn't think that the brawling elements of the match came through strong enough. So to me, it just came across as really dis- disjointed. Um, maybe I was watching it with the wrong kind of mindset uh, there, but I don't know. I, I, I'm going to sound a little bit like. Uh, Matt D from the PWO boards, who who's um, always the guy who's down on wild brawls and things that everybody else goes uh, mad for. But I I actually didn't think if this was meant to be a wild brawl, it didn't feel wild enough. Um, so that's my main criticism here. So I'm going to be the major outlier on this match, and um, I I honestly probably wouldn't go more than two and a half, which is uh, a, a rare time for me, I guess, to go against uh, general consensus on a match that is uh, reasonably well rated. Um, does that surprise you, Chad? <laughs> yeah, that does surprise me uh, that you'll go that low. So, but, oh well. Yeah, I, I, I just didn't, yeah. Something wasn't happening. I did think that the, the Flair Muto interactions were pretty cool and quite novel. Um, I, I just thought this Sting, Sting really was the person who was bringing this match down, and he was in the ring for a lot of it, so... Um, okay, as an overall show, 
not bad at all, though. I think you'd agree. Yeah, I think this is a good clash overall. One of the storylines. One of the better clashes. I, I probably the third best clash behind Clash One and Clash uh, Four that I can think of. Uh, I like Clash Six too, but it, I mean it's in the upper half, so it was a good show. Yeah, excellent. Okay, um, now uh, Chad, I, I know uh, you have to you have to go in uh, the next five minutes or so, right? You don't have a lot of time. But uh, we do keep pledging to do listener comments. Are we going to do? <laughs> are we going to bail on this yet again, or shall we actually read some out? Uh, let's read a couple. Um, I, I got it pulled up here. Oh, where uh, what what we did do was we asked for the uh, kind of the ranking of the uh, trilogy. I kind of wanted to touch on that a little bit uh, from our Wrestle War stuff where we uh, asked for the ranking of the different trilogy of the matches. So I'll go through here and uh, first off, uh, Pete chimes in and says, uh, big props to Jason Mann on that show for bringing up the Sting Sheik Persian Club segment. He thought that was a brilliant subversion of a uh, cliched angle. And then, uh, and then we get the ranking. So I'll just kind of hit these sort of fast action style. Uh, Brick Hit House has Wrestle War One, Chi Town Two, Clash Three. Uh, Ricky Jackson, who was on the last podcast, has Clash Six, One, Chi Town Two, Wrestle War Number Three. Uh, and then Lost chimes in and says that he's happy we've mentioned the uh, stiffness in those matches. He's not typically a mark for that type of thing, but there's a noticeable difference in how hard Flair and Steamboat are hitting each other compared to everyone else on the roster, and it's one of the strong points of the series, which I agree with. Uh, Yo-Yo's Roomie has WrestleWar 1, Chi-Town 2, Clash 3. So uh, a lot of Clash number 3, which I think surprised both me and you, Par. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, Chu has uh, Clash 1, Wrestle War 2, Shy Town 3, which is the same exact order as I have. And uh, and then uh, Dylan chimes in and says, For years I would have gone Clash number 1, but a couple years back I watched them all back to back and came away thinking Shy Town Rumble was clearly the best. Uh, at this point, he'd go Shy Town Clash and then Wrestle War. Ever the, uh, ever the contrarian. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I was really surprised that just how much variation there was there. I actually assumed that everybody would pick the Clash show, uh, the Clash match, as the top one. Um, so that was the biggest surprise for me. I, I've just realised, Chad, we didn't do our end of show awards. Do you want to oh, yeah. do, do, oh. do, do that real quick and uh, we can go on to some other comments? We can do that real quick. Yeah. Um, MVP. Oh, no, match of the night. Uh, my match of the night. I'm going with the main event. Ah, uh, right. I'm gonna have to go with Luger Rich. I think. Okay. Yeah. Um. Yeah. There's not a lot of. Yeah, it's gonna have to be Luger Rich. That was the best match in my view. Um, MVP. Oh, let me think about MVP. That could be tough. Uh, my MVP, I'm actually, um, I think for my MVP, I'm, uh, I feel like I picked Flair every show, but I did think Flair was really good in the main event, 
taking the beating, so I am going to have to go with Flair, because, uh, I mean, this show was weird, I mean, it was a good show, but, like, like Luger, like, I thought Luger's performance was good, but, but the mugging that he did do sort of took me away a little bit from it, so, yeah, I'm just going to go with Flair, kind of the when in doubt pick Flair. <laughs> I'm going to do one of my cheat picks, which is oh, when, okay. which is when I don't pick a wrestler. Yeah, Cornette, I'm betting. Yeah. Jim, Jim Cornette was amazing on commentary, so every once in a while I cheat and pick a non a non wrestler. Um, yeah, I couldn't. Re- I mean, if I had to pick someone from in ring point of view, it's pretty tough, you know. I like it was weird. It was like a good show, but there was a lot of people who didn't usually didn't really bring their a game on this one. Um, I guess it would be Tommy Rich if I had, if I was forced, but yeah, that was who I was considering. So yeah. Um, and then Billy Graham. Uh, my Billy Graham was gonna go. It's 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 between uh, Scott Steiner and your boy Rotunda for me. <laughs> I am gonna go with Scott though because he's somebody that this early in his career with his previous matches I really liked what he's brought to the table, and here he was sloppy and reckless. So I do I do like how I've now got a reputation like Mike Rotunda's my man. I, yeah. I I'm yeah. the I'm the IRS fan. <laughs> uh I'm actually gonna go uh, yeah, Scott Scott Steiner's a good pick, I think. He um he wasn't very good in that match at all. Okay, sorry. But back to uh back to comments here. Um I've actually got a few from the main board. Uh two in Two, three, in fact, because uh, it's actually been all the way since Clash Six since we've uh, since we haven't read any comments. All right. Right. Yeah, it's been a while. So yeah, this guy uh, Mick Murphy from he says he's from Northern Ireland and he's aged thirty-four. So we'd imagine that we had similar upbringings in uh, wrestling. So Northern Ireland is technically in the in the UK. Um, he uh, he started watching uh, WF and WCW in ninety-one. Uh, he. He was into the aftermath. He just basically gives us a rundown here. Um, he said, uh, I still try to keep up to date with WWE, uh, ROH, TNA, and to some extent New Japan, but I, I find myself drawn to watching older stuff recently. Parv, I've got the impression that you've deserted the WWE. <laughs> Whatever gave you that impression. Uh, and uh, I just wanted to ask you, uh, when you stopped keeping up with WWE, did anything in particular frustrate you? Uh, I know at times I said to myself, once Michaels retires, I'm out of here. But they always pull me back in. Um, and then he says, it's time to get a little bit funky on these podcasts. Uh, get, that was the moment before Funk came in, I guess, when he was listening. Uh, so, yeah, I I pretty much, I mean, I've said it before, I stopped, list- I stopped watching really around 2005-2006. Last thing I remember was the, uh, what was that, stable, Evolution. Uh, around that time, and uh, well, the reasons I've stopped watching are well documented. If you go on PWO, I can't too too much stuff to get through to explain why I don't watch anymore. Um, and then NWA fan, um, in with a couple of uh, little bits here. Flair on Flair wearing the Lakers jacket. He says that Flair always represented the Lakers um, because they were the Hollywood team and kind of represented the flashy style. And that Dusty would often wear the Celtics because in the 80s they were the working class blue collar team. And then he says, the Wrestling News Network segment aired on one of the first episodes of Power Hour. He said, I watched it the other day. And he mentions Eric Embry in Texas 
and No Holds Barred, stating that critics didn't like it. So, NWA fan, if you're listening to this, send me that episode. I don't know. I don't care how you do it. Send space. I have to see uh, Wrestling News Network. <laughs> Any other comments here, Chad? Uh, just one, a couple more quick things on the Clash of the Seven, Clash of the Champions Seven show. Loss uh, chimed in and said that uh, so you know for whatever reason Luger's turn on Steamboat in that show was one of Paul Heyman's all-time favorite angles, which kind of seems odd. And then on the uh, on the Great American Bash show, uh, Ricky Kelly talks about how it was a fun experience, which uh, we can reciprocate that back to him, and he's going to be on the show again soon. And uh, the Brain Follower enjoyed your uh, bitter Christ at learning that the dynamic dudes were, more of them were to come. Uh, and then we had a couple of comments, one from uh, our friend Solomon, who's going to be on one of the shows coming up. Uh, in the future, it says, just watched the show last night on VHS. I like the War Games match better this time around, which I agreed with. Uh, when I watched the show live on pay-per-view, I kept comparing it to the War Games I saw at the Inglewood Forum in 1988. Uh, and he says, I think this War Games is the best one post-Crockett era. My two favorites are the 87 Atlanta one and the 88 one in uh, L.A. So that's kind of a, I think, a contrary opinion of. I did like that War Games match on Great American Bash '89 a lot, but I still would have probably the '91 uh, and '92 War Games ahead of it. Oh yeah, and then, easily. And then uh, Doc Sauropoulos says that he enjoyed the podcast and I'm elated that the show stood up for you guys. I won't defend the Battle Royal as it isn't a good match, but I will defend the finish. As a kid, I thought the image of the two skyscrapers standing triumphant and their showing of the unity under their manager was a great presentation of a new dominant hill tag team. Sure, hindsight is twenty twenty, and the skyscrapers ended up not amounting to much. However, before the injuries derailed the team, they were super over and the fans were very excited about a hot new Hill team that could likely go toe to toe with the Road Warriors, which we'll see in an upcoming show. I too actually prefer this Flair Funk match to the I Quit match. Nothing against the I Quit matches; it's absolutely fantastic and the perfect blow off to a feud. This match, however, with that aftermath, is just incredible. If anyone ever bothers to spend their time making a top five post matches, this would rank well for sure. That there's one note I'll add to the matches that Funk's ring entrance is among my favorite ever. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, thanks for the comments. I know I've gotten kind of in the past couple of, month, uh, couple of shows that we've neglected comments. I've gotten a baby of comments from different areas, uh, from the Place to Be message board, from Pro Wrestling Only, from the, our, uh, our main web page. Uh, so thank you. It means a lot. Yeah, and uh, d- d- all I all I say is keep keep the comments coming, and maybe uh, you know in another few shows we'll I mean, we'll try to do it every class show, but uh, you know uh, we have a habit of going long, <laughs> which is uh, yeah. which is why we often don't uh, re- read the comments, but keep them coming. And uh, I'm also like uh, increasingly interested in how uh, people uh, rate these shows that we're watching here. Like I'd be interested to see. Um, all of the people who gave us the rankings for the uh, Flair Steamboat trilogy, where the Funk matches would rank in in with those, whether you'd put them right up there or uh, or not. Um, so yeah, uh, let us know that you're listening, and thanks for 
yet another edition of Where the Big Boys Play. Yeah, just a quick plug uh, before we go on uh, Bigelow34.ProBars.com, the place to be message board. I have uh, me and our friend Justin Rosero was talking yesterday, and we decided to come up with a tournament for the uh, greatest WrestleMania match of all time. So uh, there's 96 matches, Parv. <laughs> right. And, and I have I have created all uh, all 32. Uh, opening opening round threads. Uh, it's it's really competitive. There's some uh, really good matches that are going head to head in the first round. Uh, Bret Hart versus Owen Hart faces uh, faces Eddie Guerrero versus Kurt Angle from WrestleMania 20 in the first round. So uh, this will be a lot of fun. Should take us into the WrestleMania season nicely. So uh, everybody go over there and vote for that. How are Power and Glory getting on in that? Tournament. Power and Glory, unfortunately, uh, did not make this tournament. I think they only had. Uh, were they even in WrestleMania Seven? I can't even remember. They may have never even been in a WrestleMania, actually. Well, I just know how much that message would love Power and Glory. Yeah, yeah. I'm still uh, bitter about. Are, it. I mean, one one thing I will say, Parv, which I don't know how you are on this match, but early on in the voting. Uh, one thing I'm surprised of is the uh, Blue Blazer versus Mr. Perfect match. From WrestleMania which, 5, is it? Yeah, yeah, from WrestleMania 5, which, you know, that that's a good match, but uh, very quick. But it's it's uh, right now in the lead. Jesus I'm to find that. Yeah, here it is. It's uh, Undertaker versus Edge from WrestleMania 24. Blue Blazer versus Mr. Perfect from WrestleMania 5. And the Money in the Bank from WrestleMania 21. Uh, so the Blue Blazer Mr. Perfect match is in the league, and uh, I haven't voted yet personally, but that would be my number three match of those three. So there there could be some surprises kind of along the way for these votes. Uh, well, I, I'm going to go for uh, like One Man Gang, which is Jim Duggan from one of the <laughs> one of the early WrestleMania four rounds or something. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I will uh, check. And you, you also did a show with them recently, right? The place to be. Yeah, uh... yeah. If if anybody hasn't checked it out, I did a show reviewing the one four nineteen ninety nine Nitro, which is uh, I was there live, and that's of course a period in WCW that we're a long ways off from uh, with our shows. But I'm really interested to get there when we do and uh, to discuss that stuff too. No, that that was an interesting. Uh, that was an interesting. Uh, show where you look at the Nitro and the Raw back to back. So, and of course, uh, you know, uh, listen to Place to Be if you don't, because uh, they have a good show and uh, a very active Facebook group. Well, I'll just say that. <laughs> Is that every every time I click on the bloody thing, oh, you've got a uh, you've got 17 notifications. Another 17 people have written in the Place to Be <laughs> Facebook. Uh, it's almost a constant, isn't it, Chad? Yeah, there's uh, usually every night if you're in the uh, group, there's something going on, something somebody's watching some show, so uh, a lot of discussion. All right, well, uh, uh, next up for us is Halloween Havoc 89, and uh, yes. I, I think we've got Doc on for that. Yes, yes, we should have him on for that. Uh, it's a show I'm actually not very familiar with. Uh, kind of, as we get into these shows, uh, pretty much, uh, you know, the early shows, like I said, I'll only watch them about once, but most of the 88, 89 stuff I've watched multiple times, but I uh, kind of, right now, the 
late 89, 90 stuff was another kind of gray area for me. So, yeah, coming I, up, a lot of shows I've either watched one or uh, maybe not even the whole show of. Yeah, Havoc 89 is not bringing any bells at all with me. I, 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 I may have not even seen it before. So, yeah. All right, well, I look forward to it. All right, I'll talk to you later, Parv. See you, Chad. Then we see a ranger with Old Glory, which I believe is the name of the US flag, right? Yep. Um, and he zip wires down to the ring. It's Ranger Ross. Who? <laughs> His opponent. I only know him as the Pearl. <laughs> ranger Ross. I couldn't sound any lamer than <laughs> Ranger Ross. Ranger Ross. Bloody ranger hell. Ross is the Pearl. <laughs> Who, who thought this guy was a good idea? I mean, he's like... Honestly, I think they may have made bigger impact if they brought S.D. Jones in here. Like, I mean, Ranger Ross. Was he a big star anywhere? Was he? And he is taking on, everybody all together, Ranger Ross. <laughs> it's Ranger Ross again. I can't believe it. Um, so... <laughs> as this mark... I couldn't... <laughs> As this match starts out, Ranger Ross, and I, I literally was marking out, to be honest, um, he starts doing the Rick Rude swivel. Did anybody else notice yeah. this? Yeah, he did the exact, like, Rude, uh, yeah, swivel pose. Um, oh, man. Ranger Ross. Pretty, pretty much all this was missing was him calling somebody a sweat hog, and it would have been uh, exactly how Rude does it. What's this guy's deal? He's meant to be a Ranger in the army. So why is he doing dance moves? Why is he doing swiveling? I, I don't understand his characterization. I don't understand who Rager Ross is even meant to be, to be honest. Hyatt comes up to the camera and she says, I didn't break my nails. And then Ranger Ross comes up behind her and says, And I didn't mess up my hair. <laughs> Which I guess is a joke from Ranger Ross. But it's also a glimpse into his identity crisis. He doesn't seem to understand what his gimmick is. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> here we go. Um, so it's Ranger Ross uh, who gets uh, <laughs> uh, quite the ovation here uh, from the army crowd. Um, but his opponent is the terrorist. The first thing that we can really talk about is that Ron Simmons and Ranger Ross <laughs> make it to Ring 2. Uh, and I've just written here, what the fuck? <laughs> Ranger Ross eliminates Ron Simmons. Imagine being Ron Simmons talking to the booker that night. Like... You're going to go out there, you're going to get eliminated first, and you're going to get eliminated by Ranger Ross. Like, it was like... <laughs> <laughs> Pretty easy night, though. That's the last we see of him. He's out there for like two minutes. <laughs> yeah, yes. all, all together, it's Ranger Ross. Ranger Ross. Fans, for all of us here at WCW Center Stage, for Cowboy Bill Watts and the American Dream Dusty Rhodes, I'm Jim Ross saying good night, everybody. <laughs>